Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Uh, how many of you, I'd like to see a show across our four campuses, so uh, DeKalb and uh, Aurora, Streamwood, St. Charles, how many of you have ever been on one of Christ Community Church's Go Team trips? Wow, a lot of you, great. Uh, way back in the 1990s, uh, we were just getting this ministry launched, and I took our first trip, I took another guy on staff with me, and we went to the country of Romania, which had just opened up. It had been under the thumb of a cruel, tyrannical, communist leader, dictator by the name of Ceausescu, and he had been deposed. And so I was going to scout a, a particular partner, a potential partner for us. And uh, my experience was, the country was pretty backward, my, my experience was as I got there, a certain amount of homesick for the good old USA. If you've ever traveled abroad, you've probably experienced that. Uh, it started when I got out of the airport and I was picked up by my host in his car and we drove toward the hotel and we hit a pothole, one of many potholes in the roads at that time. And the police came by and I thought, oh good, they're here to help, but they were actually there to get a bribe. In fact, they said, you either bribe us or you go to jail. So we bribed them. And I thought to myself, you are no longer in Kansas, Dorothy, all right, this is, this is not home. This is not home. And then, then we drove to the hotel, and I went up to my room, and the sheets on the bed smelled like the previous guy's B.O., and the toilet didn't work, and the restaurant in the hotel, they, they didn't have a menu because they only served one meal, take it or leave it. And, and again, there was this sense of missing home. I'm miss, missing home. And it was a good trip, but toward the end of it, about two days before it concluded, I got deathly sick. Couldn't get out of bed except to run back and forth to the bathroom using the toilet that didn't flush. And uh, then we heard the bad news that our return flight home, we might not be able to get on it because they had overbooked it. We were flying the Romanian airlines to Rome, the unfriendly skies of Romania, as I called them. And they had booked like twice as many passengers as they could handle. And we were told, if you want to get on this flight, you've got to go and jostle for position because it's going to be first come, first serve. So here I am. They pull me out of my, my deathbed, and uh, two burly Romanian guys held me up on either side in the, the Madhouse airport as we waited in line, hoping to get a ticket home. Boy, did I feel homesick. I just wanted to get home. You ever feel that way? Maybe as a child you were sent away to summer camp and that was your first experience of homesickness. Or you were a freshman at an out-of-state university or you were a soldier deployed overseas. Uh, maybe your experience of homesickness was as a, a salesperson taking your first business trip out of town. Or you're the new resident in the neighborhood and you're wanting your old neighborhood and your old friends homesickness. Uh, if you'll Google it, you'll discover it's considered to be an adjustment disorder. And it, it can manifest itself in depression, anxiety, stress, insecurity, the loss of appetite, sleep, sleeplessness. Many of us have experienced an acute case of homesickness at some point in our lives. But here's a startling truth that we're going to focus on today as we study God's Word. The Bible teaches 
that homesickness is not just an occasional longing that we may or may not ever experience. No, homesickness is a deep-seated fundamental condition that afflicts the entire human race. Let me say that again. Homesickness is a deep-seated fundamental condition that afflicts the entire human race. We are all homesick constantly, even though we often don't notice it because we fill our lives with so many distractions. We keep ourselves so busy. Welcome to week one of a six-part series we're calling Home. Home, what our hearts long for. Now, this is a holiday series. That's why we're beginning at the weekend before Thanksgiving here, and it's going to continue through the weekend after Christmas, six weeks. Why do a series about home during the holidays? Well, because of the words and the words of the uh, song you're all familiar, familiar with, there's no place like home for the holidays because no matter how far away you roam, if you want to be happy in a million ways, sing it with me. For the holidays, you can't beat home, sweet home. That was weak. I was weak. Perry Como would be disappointed. For the holidays, you can't beat home, sweet home. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Okay, opening book of the Bible, Genesis Chapter 3. This may surprise you, but a, a major theme of the Bible has to do with home. And it begins in the opening pages of Scripture in the book of Genesis. This is where we learn why, why we're all afflicted with a nagging sense of homesickness, whether we've identified it as such or not. And today we're going to learn how homesickness originated among the human race and how it touches every aspect of our lives. And since we're, we're beginning in Genesis chapter 3, let me quickly recap for you what has happened in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. This is context, okay? Capital C, context. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world, the heavens and the earth, and it is beautiful. Everything that God creates is good. In fact, he says, uh, you know, after he creates something, that's good, then that's good, that's good, all the way up to the creation of the first human couple, and he says, that's very good when he creates Adam and Eve. And he places them in the Garden of Eden, a virtual paradise. This is where they experience meaningful work and an incredible marriage, and best of all, intimate communion with God, fellowship with God. And they delight in all these things until the day they decide to throw it all away. Scripture tells us that Satan arrives on the scene and he points to a tree in the middle of the garden and he says, see that, that tree there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yeah, they saw the tree. Well, you know why God doesn't want you to eat from that tree? Now, this was the only tree in the garden that God had said, don't eat from that tree. Every, every other tree they were free to eat from. This is the one God said, don't eat from that tree. Satan said, I'll tell you why. Because God knows the minute you, you eat from that tree, the fruit, your, your eyes will be opened. You'll be as wise as God. You won't, you won't need God anymore. You won't have to depend on God anymore. And Adam and Eve thought that was a pretty good idea. And it led to their, their fall. They fell for that temptation, which is why theologians refer to this as the fall of humanity. They fell for it. They ate the forbidden fruit. They flagrantly disobeyed God. And immediately, they were estranged from everything that had brought such delight to their lives. Immediately, they no longer felt at home, at home in this world. And God showed up on the scene. 
And he said, let me tell you what your disobedience, what your sin is going to cost you. And this is the same cost for every one of us today. When we sin, when we go our way instead of God's way. God says what what happens is you lose your sense of home. You, You become estranged from five things. This is our outline today. If you haven't taken your outline out, I encourage you to take it out. Fill it in as as we go. You become estranged from five things. Number one, you become estranged from yourself. Okay, we become estranged from ourselves. Now, if you're open to Genesis chapter 3, let me read verse 7 to you to to get us started. This is what happens immediately after they eat the forbidden fruit. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your holy word estranged from ourselves. When Adam and Eve realized they had sinned, what did they do next? Well, they tried to cover up their shame. They sewed fig leaf garments for themselves to conceal who they had, who they had become. And friends, we've been doing the same thing ever since. Now, we, we, we don't wear fig leaf garments. At least I hope you don't wear a fig leaf garment to work or school, whatever. But, but we work really hard at hiding the dark side of who we are from others. We don't want anybody else to see what we're ashamed of. So we keep it out of the public eye. Any addictive behaviors, any selfish motives, any resentment we hold towards certain people, any, any prejudice... Any private outburst of anger, any greeting, greedy spending on ourselves, we cover that stuff up. And what we present to others, listen, what we present to others is an airbrushed image of ourselves. That's why we love Facebook. That's why we love Instagram. You know, you, 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 you don't post the dirt on yourself, right? You let everybody know what a wonderful life you're living. We get so good at concealing our crap, sorry to be so blunt, that we we actually hide it from ourselves. We no longer see the seamy side of who we are, and human beings have been doing that since the beginning of time. That's why the prophet Jeremiah, writing 2,500 years ago, he says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You hear what Jeremiah is saying? You don't understand your own heart. It's wicked beyond belief. The apostle Paul wrote the same thing in the first century in his epistle to the Romans, Romans 7, verse 15. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I I don't do. But what I hate, that's what I do. You ever have that that experience? You ever ever surprise yourself with your capacity for sinfulness? You you say something bad or you do something bad and you kind of act surprised, like, I can't believe I did that. Where where did that come from? You ever have that experience? Nod your head, please, so Paul and I don't feel like we're the only ones. Okay? We are estranged from ourselves. We keep the dark side of who we are hidden. Although occasionally the fig leaves get pulled back a bit and we and others get a good glimpse of what, we can be conce- what we've been concealing and that can be devastating. I have a friend who called me a couple of weeks ago 
We hadn't talked for a, a number of years. She and her husband have been on the staff of a church down south. Haven't seen them in a while. And she called me to inform me of some devastating news. Uh, she had recently learned that her husband has been carrying on an affair. He's been unfaithful to her, and he's managed to conceal it from everybody. Uh, until just recently, uh, he was texting his mistress, and he mistakenly sent the text to his teenage daughter. Yeah, oops. Wow. How, how would you like your sin outed in such a way? Your, your, your private sin, surprise, everybody now knows. Well, the Bible tells us that there's a, a proper way in which to bring our hidden sins into the light. It's called confession. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, Scripture says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, to take the hit we deserve. And now he offers forgiveness. He offers a clean slate to those who will confess their sins to him, to those who will surrender their lives to him. If, if you've never done that before, that's how you begin an open, honest relationship with God. It begins with a confession of your sins. In fact, that's how a healthy relationship with God is maintained. Once you do that initial surrender and begin a relationship with Jesus, that's how a healthy relationship with God is maintained on a daily basis. It's the daily confession of sin. It's daily coming before God and inviting him by his spirit to put his finger on anything in your life that needs to be confessed from the previous 24 hours. God, any wrongful attitudes, any wrongful words, any, any hurtful actions... Bring them to my attention right now so I can confess them. I can get this right with you. Based upon what Jesus did on the cross for me, I could be forgiven. I could be purified. By the way, if you've never read my book, Prayer Coach, got a whole chapter, chapter six on confession, I'd encourage you to pick up the book and begin to apply what, what you read. This is how God enables us to be at home with ourselves. Otherwise, we're estranged from ourselves. Number two, estranged from God. Okay, Adam and Eve were estranged from God. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick up the story in verse 8. Okay, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, now, it's interesting to compare the Bible's story of creation with the creation myths of other ancient cultures. In those other stories, humans don't play a big role in the story at all. Uh, for example, the, the Babylonians, they tell the story of their god Marduk who fights off all rival gods until he establishes himself as the king of the universe, uh, making the world along the way. The Aztecs recount how two ruthless gods pull the earth goddess out of the sky, rip her in two, and half of her becomes the heavens and the other half becomes the earth. The Greeks tell stories about multiple gods whose petty jealousies lead to rape and murder and, oh, incidentally, the creation of the world. 
Now, the Assyrians, the Assyrians do include humans in the creation story, but the reason the gods create humans is for a slave labor force, so they could be weighted on hand and foot by these newly created humans. So you contrast these ancient myths with the Bible's creation story. You know, people are at the heart of the Bible's story. A loving God creates people in his own image with the capacity to enjoy a deep, intimate relationship with God. We see that reflected in the verses we just read. God showed up in the Garden of Eden, presumably to chill with Adam and Eve, to hang out, to enjoy each other's company. You know, verse 8 describes God as walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That, 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 that verb, walking, connotes caring and fellowship. It's like when we say, I, you know, I just need somebody to walk with me through this difficult time. That's what's going on here. That was the sort of relationship that God had with Adam and Eve. God was at home with them. They were at home with God. But after this original couple flagrantly disobeyed God, after they ate the forbidden fruit, wanting to be their own God, wanting to do their own thing, no longer dependent on the one who had made them, their relationship with God was trashed. You know, Adam and Eve could no longer good look God in the eye. So, so what did they do? You know, look again at the closing line of verse 8. They, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So Adam and Eve were riddled with guilt. They, they were afraid. They were afraid of facing God. And that's what sin does to us, friends. It replaces a, a healthy, reverential fear of God, awe of God, with a Oh, crud, am I in big trouble, fear of God. When, when I was a young boy, I used to look forward to the moment every day when my dad would return home for, from work, and he would come walking through the, uh, the, the garage door into the family room, and I would come racing across the family room like a linebacker and hit him with a tackle, you know? And then dad would quickly change out of his suit and tie, and he would get into some rumble clothes, and we would wrestle on the floor and roll on the living room floor. But occasionally, on days when I had misbehaved earlier in the day, my mom would say to me, wait till your dad comes home. And that was an entirely different experience. <laughs> I, I was not looking forward to dad's return. In fact, I would hide. I would hide out in, in my bedroom hoping that my wrongdoing would be forgotten. That is the natural inclination of every one of us. Knowing that we have done wrong before a, a holy God, our inclination is to hide. How many of you know that you can't hide from an omnipresent God? You know, the psalmist asks the question, Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8, he asks God, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. I, I can't get away from you, you God. You're everywhere. So if God is everywhere, if we can't hide from God, then why does God ask Adam in verse 8, Genesis 3, verse 8, where are you, Adam? You know, had God misplaced Adam? Had God lost Adam? Now, God doesn't ask the question be, be, because God doesn't know where Adam is. He asks the question because God wants Adam to identify himself as lost. Where are you, 
Adam, God wants to hear, I'm lost, God. I'm far from you. God still asks that question of you today. Where are you? Where are you? Have you ever answered the question? Have you ever said to God, well, you know, truthfully, I'm kind of far from you right now. You know, I feel, I feel like my, my, my sinful nature has kept me at arm's length from a, from a holy God. I've been going my way instead of your way. And there, there's a distance between us. Have you, have you ever admitted that to Almighty God? Because that's the way back home. You know, the way back home begins when you recognize your lostness and you say, I want to be found. Can you bring me home? Let me tell you something, even after you're found, even after you surrender your life to Jesus and you become a follower of his, uh, we are prone to wander on any given day to go our way instead of God's way. We sing a song, an old hymn around here. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Yeah, that's, that's our... our that's our propensity to wander away from God. So even if you're a believer today, God may be asking you the question, so where are you? Where are you? What he wants to hear from you is, I've wandered, but I want to be home. I want to be home. Number three, estranged from others. Estranged from others. Back to Genesis 3, pick it up at verse 11. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Yeah, you should be chuckling about now. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what's this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I mean, you got to love this part of the story. This is the beginning of the, the blame game that people have been playing since the beginning of time. You know, Adam bla- blames Eve for his disobedience. The woman you gave me, she gave me fruit to eat. And by the way, this was an indirect blame of God, right? The woman you gave me, she gave me this fruit. And then Eve, not to be outdone in the blame ga- game, she blames the serpent for her disobedience. You know, all of this, this blaming reminds me of, of an old Calvin and Hobbes car- cartoon strip. It's not been a, a, around for a while, so if you don't know who they are, Calvin is this six-year-old boy, and, and Hobbes is his stuffed tiger, a very a philosophical and sarcastic tiger. Well, in the opening frame of this cartoon strip, Calvin says, nothing I do is my fault. And Hobbes is just kind of rubbing his tiger whiskers, taking this all in. And Calvin continues. He says, my family is dysfunctional. My parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept responsibility for my actions. Well, Hobbes has now heard enough, and so he responds sarcastically. You know, one of us has got to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. And so Calvin concludes the strip by sighing, oh, I love the culture of victimhood. Victimhood. Blaming others for our transgressions. It doesn't do any any good, and it just alienates us from other people. See, the the reason I'm impatient with my kids is because they don't respond quickly enough. 
Or the reason I cheated on my math test is because the teacher is impossibly hard. Or the reason I flipped off that motorist is because he was tailgating me for the last mile. The reason I can't stand my mother-in-law, she's always butting in with unwanted advice. The reason I, I over-medicate with prescription drugs is because my doctor got me hooked. See, whatever our transgression, we could always blame it on somebody else. And that's why sin is hard on interpersonal relationships. Sin drives us apart from other people. It's impossible to be at home with somebody that you're blaming for something. There's something else I want you to, to see in Genesis 3, something else that sin does to our relationships with family members, with friends, with coworkers, with neighbors. Uh, drop down to the last two lines of verse 16. Okay, God is now speaking to Eve and he's telling Eve that her sinful bent is going to put her at odds with Adam. So your desire, God warns, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, what does this mean? Well, let's start with the word desire. Eve's desire would be for her husband. This was not a good desire. God's not talking here about romantic desire or sexual desire or emotional desire. He's talking about a desire to control. So, so Eve's sinful bent is going to motivate her to control Adam. And how is Adam going to respond to this pressure? Pressure. Well, again, look at the last line of verse 16. Your desire will be for him, and he will rule over you. In other words, Adam's not going to like it. He's going to push back. He's going to demand his own way. Adam's going to try to, to manipulate, to dominate Eve. Say, great marriage, right? Well, actually, this is true of any marriage between two sinful people, which means every marriage. And this is true of every human relationship. To some extent, listen to me, to some ex extent, our sinful nature will always motivate us to try to control other people. We're all control freaks. You know, we want people to do what we want them to do. You know, we, we parents want our kids to do what we want them to do. You know, we want our boss or our girlfriend or our customers or our roommate or, or our pastor to do what we want them to do. Our sinful nature is so controlling, and that makes it very hard to be at home with the people we're trying to control. Number four, estranged from nature strange from nature. We're going to take a look at the first two lines of verse 16. We've been looking at the last two lines. Go back to verse 16. Let me read the opening part of the verse to you. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains, your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. That's God's word to Eve. Now drop down to verse 17. See what God said to Adam, verse 17. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. 
So when Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, they, they immediately made their lives incredibly difficult. You, you've all heard the expression, well, we live in a fallen world. We do. We live in, live in a fallen world. God designed this world to be idyllic. He designed it to be perfect, to be blissful. But our sin wrecked all that. Even nature has been corrupted, and so it has turned against us. The verses we just read give a couple of examples of what that estrangement from nature, what they, they, they look like. You know, for, for, for women who give birth to, to babies, an experience that God originally designed to be an incredible delight, he says it's going to be painful. In fact, it says it painful twice in verse, uh, verse 16. You know, I'll never forget my wife's first labor and delivery. Uh, with our, our oldest daughter, Emily, took over 20 hours, excruciating, you know, which is why when her water broke with our second child, with, with Rachel, and we were on our way to the hospital in the middle of the na- night, I insisted that she stop at a 24-hour donut shop because I knew it was going to be a long labor and her labor coach would need something to eat. <laughs> yeah. I'm just fortunate to be alive to tell you this story. (laughs) Oh, the pain that I watched my wife go through. And and the word pain, again, if you look at verse 16, the word pain is is in the plural. It's pains, which means physical pain is just one, one kind of pain. There are other kinds of pain associated with the childbirth process. You might miscarry. There might be emotional pain or you might have a child with something wrong with it. You know, there's economic pain. This is a baby perhaps you didn't expect. It's an extra mouth to feed. You're concerned about how you're going to do that. It's pains, plural. So this is the estrangement from nature that God says Eve and women to follow are going to experience and then he turns to the man and he says with you it's going to be work dude you know your your work that you have enjoyed up to this point in time it's going to become laborious it's going to be grueling it's it's going to be burdensome and we all every one of us who works you know we we know what that's like even if you love your job there are aspects of your job you absolutely hate right I mean you love working with people but you hate the paperwork side of it Okay, or, or, or you, what else do you love about your job and then find yourself self-hating? You, you know, you love doing a good job, but you hate those performance evaluations. Or you love working outside, but you, you hate when the weather drops to zero degrees outside. Or you're a student who loves school, you love to work, except when the teacher puts you on one of those work projects with other students who don't want to carry their weight and you get the same grade, right? That's not fair. You hate that part of it. You know, some of us hate the fact that we can't always fix the things we're supposed to fix on our job, or we hate IT glitches. I hate IT glitches. You know, I'll be working on my laptop in my home office, working on a sermon, and I'm digging it. I'm loving researching and studying and writing a sermon, and then something goes kaplooey with my laptop. I don't know, was it some key I hit? Was it that we lost the connection? So I call my admin. I say, I'm going to throw my PC against the wall. Quick, help me. 
It's true. There's, there, there are aspects of our job that we hate even if we love the job overall. Work is no longer the pure joy that God originally intended it to be because nature is now against us. And eventually, eventually, according to the closing lines of verse 19, nature will even claim our bodies. God said to Adam, you were made from dust and to dust you will return. I heard about a dad who was reading this passage to his family. He was doing Bible savvy around his dinner table, right? Reading the scripture, and he came to this part, and he explained to his kids. He said, you know, people originally came from dust, and and eventually they're going to return to dust. And he saw a puzzled look on his son's face, and a little little boy said, well, then I got somebody under my bed, and I don't know whether he's coming or going. You know, this, this poet, someone will explain it to you on the way home, okay? This poetic way of referring to death will return to dust. It's, it sounds so innocuous, doesn't it? And that's what a lot of contemporary books say about death. They say, well, death is just a natural part of life. It's part of the cycle of life. So we need to accept it with equanimity, with tranquility. Really? You know, because the Bible says that death is not natural. The Bible says that death is the result of living in a fallen world where nature now wars against us, where we experience sickness and disease and ultimately a return to death, to to dust. Talk about inhospitable. We, We are no longer at home in this world. Which brings us to our fifth and final point, estranged from home estranged from home. In the closing verses of Genesis 3, we read that God ultimately had to banish Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, from their home. Why banishment? Well, because God didn't want these humans to eat from another tree in the garden, the tree of life. Why not? Well, because if they ate from the tree of life, they would live forever. However, they would live forever in their sinful, corrupted, miserable condition. That kind of eternal life would not be a blessing. It would be a curse. And so Adam, whose very name means ground, Adama in Hebrew, ground, earth, dirt, he was banished from the ground, from the piece of land, from the home that God had originally intended for him. Look at verse 24. After God drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guide the way to the tree of life. By the way, cherubim in the Bible, they are angel warriors. They're not the chubby, cute little figures on Valentine's cards that shoot arrows with hearts and so on. This is a pretty bleak picture. And it explains why we all have an underlying sense of homesickness in this world, whether we recognize it as such or not. We are estranged. We are estranged from ourselves. We are estranged from God. We are estranged from others. We are estranged from nature. We are estranged from home. So is there no hope for us? Well, there's a little glimmer of hope in Genesis 3 that I want to point out to you. Now, if you want the full picture of hope that the Bible paints, you've got to come back for the next five weeks of this home series, because we'll be talking a lot about hope. 
But there's a glimmer, there's a glimmer of hope in verse 15. Look at verse 15. God says to Satan, who had led Adam and Eve into sin, God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, the woman's offspring, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now this is an amazing verse, friends, because this is the first foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus Christ in the Bible. All the way back at the beginning of time, Satan was told that one day a very special human, a descendant of Eve, an offspring of Eve, would come to planet Earth. And God says to Satan, Satan, you will strike this human's heel. In in, in other words, Satan would hurt this human badly, but this human would ultimately crush Satan's head. This is a foreshadowing of the cross, friends. Satan conspired to put Jesus to death, but Jesus turned the tables on Satan. Satan thought it was a great victory, but what he didn't know, it was his ultimate defeat that Jesus would rise from the dead three days later, and even his death, his death itself would pay the penalty for our sins so that all who surrender their lives to him, all who say, Jesus, I want you to be the savior and king of my life would experience forgiveness and new life and eternal life. And then one day, Jesus would destroy Satan forever and ever. See, this is the beginning of the good news. Theologians refer to this as the proto-euangelion. So proto means first, euangelion means gospel or good news. This is the first glimmer of the good news about Jesus in the Bible. The good news is you you don't have to continue experiencing estrangement. That if you'll surrender your life to Christ... God will make you at home with himself. And he'll put within your heart a longing for a future home that he has in store for you, something we're going to talk more about as the series progresses. As I close in prayer, and we're going to sing a a real brief chorus in closing, I want to pray especially with those of you who've never surrendered your lives to Christ. You know, maybe, maybe you grew up going to church. Maybe this is the first time you've been in church in a long while. But to the best of your knowledge, you, you know, you feel this dissonance. You feel this homesickness. And you've wondered why. And today you learned why. It's a real thing. And you've also learned the remedy. The, the remedy is to surrender to Christ. So I want to invite you to pray with me and do that right now. Let's pray. You know, across our four campuses, as you're listening... You folks out in DeKalb right now, up in Streamwood, down in Aurora, here in St. Charles, if you've never surrendered to Jesus, would you do that right now? It takes owning up to your sin. Remember what I said about confession? You've been hiding yourself from yourself. You know, all the the crud of your life that you've been glossing over, you have to own up to it. You have to say to God, God, I've been going my way instead of your way. And I've made a mess of things. And my character is tainted by selfishness and pride and materialism and anger and lust and all sorts of other things that pop up their their ugly head from time to time. Would you confess that to God? Say, yep, I'm a sinful person. My sin 
My sin has caused me to conceal that dark side from myself and to think that I could hide from you, but I don't want to hide any longer. Tell God that. And then acknowledge that God sent his son for you. Tell him thank you this Thanksgiving week. Say thank you for sending Jesus. I understand that he took the penalty my sins deserve. Can you tell God that right now from your heart? Tell Jesus, I want you to be the savior, the king of my life from this point on. I am turning over my life to you. I'm no longer going to try and run it like Adam and Eve thought they were going to run their own lives. I want you on the throne of my heart, reigning as king. Would you tell that to Jesus right now? And I want to speak to those of you who are already Christ followers, but earlier in the sermon when I talked about wandering from God, it resonated with you because at this point in your life, maybe it's just this week or maybe it's been going on for a month or maybe it's been a few years where you've drifted from God and there's not a passionate love for him and there's not a sense that you're at home with him and he's at home with you. He doesn't walk with you in the cool of the day of the garden, so to speak. And you, you want back, you want that intimacy. Would you just confess to God whatever's keeping you from him right now and saying, would you bring me home? Would you bring me home? God, I thank you for putting this, this homing instinct into every one of us, a craving for home, a desire for something more than what we're experiencing in this life. Thank you that that homeness is to be found in you. I pray that today we would be, begin new relationships or we would return to old familiar relationships with you that we have abandoned. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.